This morning, we will be reading from the New Testament, from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, uh, the second half of the chapter, verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Bethany. And it's so great to be here with you this morning to talk about the gospel. The gospel. This is a series that we've been doing for several weeks now, and in fact, it is more important to us than really any other thing that we at Bethany have defined ourselves as a gospel-centered church. And in fact, in every message that we preach, in every story that we read in the Bible, we see the gospel at work. The gospel is the way to understand all of existence. The gospel is the lens by which we can make sense of the world. Because the gospel is this awesome 
and mysterious and miraculous thing that has a way of being one thing and many things. The gospel has a way of being both and. See, the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, of the 33 years that he walked the earth, and specifically of one weekend, that first Easter weekend, all that he accomplished through his death and resurrection. The gospel is that simplicity. But the gospel is also the story of all of history. As we've been talking about for weeks, the gospel is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The gospel is the story of all of history. It's that both and. I don't know if you've had these kind of frustrating conversations that maybe this happens working with teenagers quite a bit, but you ask an either or question and you get a both and answer, right? Which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? Yes. Or, like we're experiencing today, is it going to rain or be sunny this week in Oregon? Yes. Yes. See, the gospel is both and. The gospel is so simple it can be explained to a child. In few words, God saves sinners. Jesus died for your sins. And yet, the gospel is so complex that we could study it for years. We will study it and marvel at it and understand new pieces to it for our entire lives and even beyond. That it can be three simple words and it can also be big 50 cent words that people with elbow patches have talked about in crazy rooms for a while. We throw around words like justification, sanctification, glorification, big heavy words. The gospel is all of these things. It is both and. And today, I, I want, we're going to finish up our series on the gospel, and I want to talk to you about a couple of both ands of the gospel, a couple of both ands that are a part of the truth that is central to our faith, but are also outworkings of what that means, of the implications of what the gospel does in us of what our lives look like in the gospel, transformed by the gospel. The gospel is both and. The gospel is so much. Um, would you pray with me and, and we'll dig into this. Um, God, we, we, we love you and we need you and we are in awe of your gospel. We are in awe of of what you have done for us, that while everything that we have brought to the table is filthy rags, God, you accomplished all things. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice for Easter weekend, for the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. And now, as we look at your word, as we examine the implications and outworkings of the gospel, I pray that the only things that we see, that the only things that I say would be truths about you. God, keep me from saying anything that is not true about your gospel. And let the gospel continue its work of transforming our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Well, I want to uh, start with just going back a little bit and talking about some of the things that we've been talking about in this gospel. Um, We talked about the tenses of salvation, and I've already used these three words that we've talked about, justification, sanctification, and glorification. See, it's, it's it's a past, present, and future tense. Normally, discussions about grammar don't help me all that much. I'm not real into grammar and tenses, but in this case, in this particular case, salvation is talked about in the scriptures as the perfect tense and the future tense, which means it has past completed action with ongoing results up to and through the present into the future. That when we talk about salvation, we talk about how I am saved, it is something that happened in the past and is completed. It is also something that is ongoing in my life and will continue to be ongoing until that time in the future where I am saved wholly and completely. See, this is those three words. Let's look at the chart. I was saved from the penalty of sin. And we call that justification. That is to say, I was deserving of death and hell. And Jesus, through his work on the cross, through his shed blood, made payment for my sins, took the penalty upon himself. And now I was saved from the penalty of sin. And currently, I am being saved from the very power of sin in my life. Once I was under slavery to sin. I could only sin. I could only do what sin told me, what controlled me. But through the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in my life, I am being saved from the power of sin. Now I have the power to do righteousness. Now I have the power to. It's, it's um, that question, what are you, the freedom that you are not necessarily only freedom from, but freedom for freedom to do righteousness. And ultimately, one day, I will be saved from the very presence of sin completely. Sin will no longer even be around. Sin will no longer even be something that I have to worry about or think about. Sin will be gone completely. I will be saved from the presence of sin. We call that glorification. You see how it is all the same miracle. It is all interconnected. It is all a part of the gospel. I was saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. You cannot separate these concepts biblically. You cannot simply have one without the others. True, you can only believe this one thing. And the great perfect example is the thief on the cross who believed, put his, his faith in Jesus, and in that moment or within the span of a couple of hours was saved completely and taken to be with Jesus in paradise. But as we look at the scriptures, as we look at the outworking, and particularly the teachings of the New Testament, even the Great Commission itself, let's talk about it that way, that when Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, sent out his believers, he commissioned them with this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Do you see how it's all together? And he even says, 
until, what's the, oh, how's it go? Until I come again, until, until the end of time, something along those lines. Man, I forgot it. My mind went blank. But all three tenses are present there. Make disciples. Teach them the gospel. Preach to them the message of justification of sins, that they can be made right with God. And continue walking with them, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded, teaching them in discipleship, growing in sanctification until I come again, until the last days when ultimately you'll be saved altogether. See, it's always in that same sentence. It's always interconnected, these tenses of the gospel, this part of salvation that is simple and complex. One important note before we move on, and we have to talk about this every time we talk about the gospel, that it is grace alone. That it is only by grace that we are saved. The Bible is incredibly clear that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, so that we have nothing to boast in. All three tenses of salvation are by grace alone. I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved by grace. Jeff laid this out so well in talking about sanctification that we can't just change how we think, speak, and act and in some kind of moralism through effort on our own get to holiness, which is the process of sanctification. We are not talking about moralism and earning, but God renovating our hearts. We are new creations. And even the faith to believe was a gift. The ability to grow in holiness is a gift. So I act in response to grace, not to earn. That the process of sanctification is by grace alone. That all tenses of salvation are through the work of God himself. I have nothing to boast in. I have nothing to bring to the table Salvation is always by grace alone. And we'll talk about today some purpose and defining characteristics of what a Christian life looks like in response to grace, always through the power of grace in the gospel. As we see in our passage here in 2 Corinthians, in verse 14, we are controlled by the love of Christ. We are compelled, some translations say. It is the controlling force in our lives. We cannot help but be moved into action by the immensity of Christ's love and work on our behalf. We are controlled by the love of Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus Christ does for us. So today I want to talk to you about two both-and truths, about the outworking of the gospel in our lives. And then we're going to focus on this concept, that, which is here in our passage of reconciliation. Reconciliation, this grand, big word that, that explains and unpacks the gospel for us, is so important in our understanding. So let's talk about what it means. What is Reconciliation. The New International Bible Dictionary defines it this way. Reconciliation is a change of relationship between God and man based on the changed status of man through the redemptive work of Christ. The definite basis for reconciliation 
rests both in what God does in annulling the effects of sin in a person so that no enmity exists and in what he does in creating a redeemed nature in that person so that there can be fellowship between God and the redeemed one. Phew. Those are some elbow patch words. You might be saying to yourself, or whispering to me even, maybe we don't need reference book language this morning. What does this mean? What are we trying to say? Reconciliation then is this. God removing the sin which keeps us apart from him and God recreating us as new creatures that can walk with him through the work of Christ to restore our relationship. Reconciliation is removing that which keeps us from him, that we were enemies with him, that we were at enmity. It's a big word that's used often in relationship to this topic, that there was this this thing between us, that there was strife, that, that we were at odds, that our relationship was not right with God. There was something between us. That thing between us was sin, and God dealt with that through Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and he also gave us his righteousness. He also created in us a new being. He recreated us as new creatures so that we could continue to walk in him, that we could live out Christ's righteousness in our lives. And through those two things, again, by grace alone, through Christ alone, he restored our relationship. He made it possible for us to be with him, to be with him the way it was always meant to be. Remember, we talk about kingdom in the garden and going back to the way that things were, going back to the way that things were originally created to be, that we could walk with God in the garden, that we could see him face to face. That is, that is the joy and the, the purpose and the pleasure of the gospel. I hope that that is your hope, to walk with God in the garden. There's nothing better than that. He died for us and broke open the gates of life to us through his choice, through his work alone, through grace alone, only possible by what Jesus Christ did for us. And now we get to the heart of our passage today, and I want to spend most of our time on chapter 5, verse 18, which is such a great and powerful verse. It says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Just just break it down and think about it piece by piece, just real quickly. All this is from God. It's a work of God alone. Grace alone. All this is from God. That Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, this is the first, first both and that I want to talk to us about today. What this verse tells me is that the miracle of the gospel is my death to sin and new life in Christ, and he has chosen not only to work in us, but through us. In the gospel, God works both in and through us. You see how it's in the same breath 
that God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We were rescued and commissioned. He brought us in and sent us out. He adopted us as sons and daughters and employed us as ambassadors, as ministers for him. God wants to work in and through you. Again, throughout the scriptures, this is made clear, but let's just think about Paul in Ephesians, which we've already talked about, that great passage that we are saved by grace through faith. Not anything that we did justified before the Father through, through the all-accomplishing sacrifice of the Son. But Ephesians 2.10, right after those great verses, says we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God wants to do something through you. God wants to rescue you and use you. God wants to bring you in and send you out. You can hardly read the scripture about the gospel without seeing the plan of God to use his new creations for his gospel work, for his purpose. That is is why we are still here. That, that is why we are here on earth as believers, to be employed in his service, to be ministers of reconciliation. That it's far better for us to be taken away and be with him, but we have a purpose here on earth. We are called to something. We are called to the ministry of reconciliation. We are given a ministry. And this is for all of us not only a special class of believer, not only the apostles or the church fathers, not only the officers of the church, not just the pastor or the elders or the deacons, not a special office of missionaries. To all of us who have believed, we are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. It is part and parcel with our salvation. It is an outworking of the gospel. So what is this ministry of reconciliation? I want to submit to you that it is twofold. And like all these both and questions we have been discussing, it includes two things. That the ministry of reconciliation is first to proclaim with all that I have the gospel of God forgiving sins and restoring relationships. First, it is that great commission of telling people about the gospel, of of proclaiming to people, young and old, that God saves sinners, that Jesus died for your sins. We are all called to be missionaries, to proclaim the gospel to all the world. Notice, even in this passage, And we're talking about grammar again. I don't know how that happened. But this is a passive, descriptive reality. It's not even a command necessarily. It says this is how it is. This is who you are. It is true that you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It describes your new life in Christ. Again, not a special kind of Christ follower, but all those called by his name. This is the truth about who you are and why you have been rescued. That we were called to proclaim the gospel. 
and, both and, to forgive and restore relationships. So we're called to proclaim that God forgives sins and restores relationships, and we are also called to forgive and restore relationships. Again, it's an outworking of the gospel. It's reconciliation, not just of our vertical relationships, but our horizontal ones as well. As Jesus walked and lived a life of reconciliation, he called the outcasts, he called those far out to come in. He restored relationships everywhere that he went. We, his followers, are called to do the same. He sought out people from across vast divides and restored relationships. Again, let's, let's look very briefly at another way that the New Testament describes a believer. For example, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12, um, I know there, there's headings on my Bible. I don't know if there is on yours, but above paragraphs. And these are not inspired, authoritative part of the word, but they can be helpful sometimes. And right above verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, my Bible has the heading, The Marks of a True Christian. That this is what a believer in Jesus looks like. That this is what someone who has been rescued and reconciled by the gospel lives like, looks like. This is the outworking of the gospel in their lives. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. It goes on. But notice how much about the marks of a true Christian is about our relationship with other people, is about our horizontal relationships. Notice how much is about caring for others, loving others, forgiving others, blessing even those who persecute us. This is what a Christ follower looks like. This, again, is interconnected part and parcel with the gospel. If the gospel has transformed you, this is what your life looks like. Think about the gravity of the great apologetic. And what I mean by that is the great description of how Jesus says this is how people will know. This is how people will know that you are my disciples. He says it in the upper room in the night before he was betrayed when he's having the Last Supper with his disciples. In John chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And this is how the world will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. That this, this is the primary means by which people will see and know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by our love for other people. That's, that's shocking if we take a minute to think about it. In the world the way that it was at the time and in the world the way that it is now, that's shocking. To be people of love for one another is, is a shocking sign to the world around us. You, you don't have to have me tell you what the world is like. In our increasingly caustic, divided world full of vitriol and hatred for one another, that we think anyone who disagrees with us is the reprehensible other. In today's acidic world, people who love one another, it stands out. It's shocking that, th that this is defining of followers of Jesus Christ. Again, connected with the gospel. We are to be ambassadors of reconciliation, and that is an incredibly and increasingly counter-cultural message. And this is true of all people and particularly of believers. There's a general truth that we are to love everyone, that we are called to seek out those far from God, that we are to love even our enemies, as we read in Romans chapter 12, that we are to bless those who persecute us even. We are called to love everyone, but there also is a particular and special call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that that is the defining characteristic, that we have love for each other. We should be known as people who love and care for each other. And in fact, the opposite is true in the scripture as well. To live a life of strife and contention with others is unthinkable to the biblical writers. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs us to interrupt our worship if we have broken relationships that we can fix. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, to leave your gift before the altar and go. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Interrupt your worship that you can't have right vertical relationship with God if you have strife and enmity and this division that you have the ability to fix in your horizontal relationships. Again, think about this. We are called not to take the Lord's Supper, not to take communion, to partake in the sacred ordinance, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are not to take it if we have something against our brother and sister. Do you see how serious and interconnected this is? To not partake in the Lord's Supper, to not come to his sacred table if we have something that we can fix with our brother and sister. That's heavy. That's serious. We are called to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness of sins and restored relationships and to forgive and restore relationships because we have an official role to play in the unfolding of God's divine plan of redemption throughout history. We are ambassadors. 
The word ambassador for Christ is worth spending some time and thinking about. An ambassador is an official representative of the kingdom or the realm from which they are sent. An agent of the state. It's one who speaks on behalf of the king. That we represent the government of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in a foreign land. By necessity, an ambassador lives in an alien and foreign land. To be the liaison, to be the representative, to speak the message of the kingdom in a land that is foreign. We live in a world that is not our home. We are not citizens of this world. And yet, an ambassador cannot make enemies with the culture to which it is sent. We cannot fight against the ways of the foreign land and hope to faithfully represent the king. We cannot turn the mission field into enemies. We cannot represent the message of reconciliation to a broken world if our relationships are not reconciled. This means owning our sin and brokenness. It's so much focused on self-reflection, on looking at myself. If we own this ministry of reconciliation, that it means we have to do our part. That we still sin regularly and our sin has an impact on the people around us. So we must be quick to confess. We should be people marked by confession. We should be apologizing anytime there is conflict for whatever our part is. And this is where that, that idea of like broken relationships and you think, well, it's, there's always two sides to every story, right? Have you heard that? And maybe if you've been to counseling or something like that, you know like it's never 100% somebody's fault. There's always some kind of shared, well, what I did was only in response to what you did. I only raised my voice because you insulted my haircut or whatever the case might be. Like, I don't bear responsibility because I only did it after what you did what you did. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible's calling us to. If you only own a portion of the blame, you first take responsibility for your portion of the blame. You first say, I have sinned against you and I'm sorry. We must be the first to confess. And we must be quick to forgive. And then, sometimes, it's not possible to restore relationships. In a broken world, there will still be strife. Which is why Romans 12 says it the way that it does. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. See, we go the extra mile, which is an important phrase with biblical roots, right? We go the extra mile. We bend over backwards. We take the lowest position. We act as servants. We turn the other cheek. We wash feet. We love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. We take the very attitude of Jesus Christ who emptied himself of his rights as God and took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient even to death, even death on a cross. 
we go the extra mile. We are people of reconciliation, and we do our part. And sometimes our part isn't enough. Sometimes people hold grudges against us, but we are quick to confess and quick to forgive. Here's what I love about this passage. And again, we're going back to 2 Corinthians 5, and this hit me anew this week. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see people differently now. We no longer see the things which divide us here on earth. We have new life in Christ and new gospel eyes. We no longer see worldly divisions. And particularly, we see anyone in Christ, any one of our brothers and sisters, as a new creation. We don't see the old defining characteristics about them. We see them as new. See, in the flow of argument here, in this great and often quoted verse about anyone being in Christ, being a new creation, it is true that it says something deep and profound about me, that in Christ I am a new creation, that I can hold on to that promise. But what Paul is saying, if we connect it to the verse before it, is that that's how I see others, that this verse is describing others, that I no longer see anyone according to the flesh, but now I see that anyone in Christ is a new creation. I see what Christ has made new in them. I have new gospel eyes. Their old has died. Their new has come. Different and separate than some category of the flesh. They are my family. Part of the transformation, God working new in me, is that the new way I see others. They are fellow believers. They are new creations just like me. And I must go out of my way to have relationships with them. We cannot have broken relationships within the family of God. That if we are to be ministers of reconciliation, we have to do whatever it takes to confess, forgive, and restore relationships. How does this work? How do we live lives of reconciliation? What practical steps can we take? For that, I want to churn. Our church has a statement on peacemaking and reconciliation. This is part of our defining documents at Bethany. Let's. Can you? The next slide. Can you put it up and let's look at? It's hard to read. Can anybody see it? A little. I'll read a couple to you. This is in the section on personal peacemaking. We will try to get the logs out of our own eyes before focusing on what others may have done wrong. We will seek to overlook minor offenses. We will respond with humility. When someone tries to correct us, we will ask God to help us resist prideful def defensiveness and to welcome correction with humility. When others repent, we will ask God to give us the grace to forgive them as he has forgiven us. We have the responsibility on ourselves. Notice how much of this is about my responsibility. It's about what I am to do. 
that I have to first look at my own sin, to own my own part. Man, this is what I try to impart to my kids as they're growing up. Own up. That's, that's core to the gospel. Own up. You're a sinner. You made a mistake. Man, mistake wasn't as big as their mistake. No, 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 no. Own up. You can only worry about what you did. Own up. Confess and forgive. First, I got a log in my own eye, and before I go looking at anybody else's, I better take care of that. And I will be so quick to forgive, to overlook, to not be offended, to refrain from talking bad about others, to make charitable judgments, to forgive, to accept correction, to be humble in all things. Our world is so lacking in humility. And that is such a gospel characteristic. I don't see how you can be a follower of Jesus without growing in humility. It's my responsibility. I take the log out of my own eye. I believe the best about others. I confess and forgive. Because there's warnings in the scripture as well. We talked about the positive, but the negative is also true. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And perhaps the most serious, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, when he's teaching the Lord's Prayer, which contains the phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, or forgive us our debts, trespasses, as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. Those things are connected. In fact, at the end of the prayer, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. That's weighty. That's heavy. That should motivate us to forgive. We have been forgiven so much. Consider the depths of your sin and how much you have been forgiven. Consider the weight of the gospel in your life. And then you too must forgive others. We must be quick to forgive. And it's all connected to the gospel. Paul begins and ends in our passage with the gospel. It's the scripture's message to us and our message to the world. He says, we beg you. We implore you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Please, be reconciled to God. Live out the gospel Be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We implore you, be reconciled to God because, again, that is our only hope. Again, that is the best future we can hope for is to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We beg you, be reconciled to God. How? In verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The perfect Jesus Christ, God himself, was made sin on our behalf. Took every lie I've ever told, every time I've ever lusted, every, every time I've ever coveted, or every time I've been filled with greed or, or desire, And he put it on Jesus Christ. My every thought, 
word and action that were a sin against the holy God, he put on Jesus Christ that we might then take on his righteousness in the sweet and great exchange that we might become the righteousness of God and live it out and be ministers of reconciliation. I want to leave you with this quote that I think, man, I want this to be true about us by Ray Ortland. The gospel being what it is and always will be, the message of reconciliation, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, happy places in town. We are so open to enemies, so meek in the face of insults and injuries, so forgiving toward the undeserving. If we do make people angry, let this be the reason we refuse to join in their selfish battles. We're following a higher call. We are the peacemakers, the true sons of God. Would you pray with me? God, Every time we talk about your gospel, we, we should be in awe that it is simple and complex, that could be understood by a child and thought about for a lifetime. May we then be people who are reconciled and reconcilers. May we as Bethany Church be known by this be known by our love for one another. May, may we be defined as this gospel place of reconciliation. God, we, it's all because of you. All this is a work of you, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And now as we sing your praises, may our song be a sacrifice acceptable to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.